and welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 71st episode, our returning guest is Michael A. Wood, Jr. You first heard from Michael A. Wood, Jr. on episodes 4, 18, and 45 of the podcast. Michael is a police reform activist who, after spending a career in the United States Marine Corps and Baltimore Police Department, has torn down the blue wall of silence. He's become a vocal advocate for a new era of civilian-led policing. While completing his doctorate studies, Michael works as much as possible with grassroots activism and makes media and speaking appearances to further the discussion on police reform and the needs of the people. You can find him on Facebook and Twitter. You can find his website at michaelawoodjr.net. He is also president of Veterans Stand. And now on to the show. Yeah, so uh, how are you settling into L.A.? <laughs> L.A. is absolutely wonderful when it comes to the weather and the uh, access to the resources that we need. But uh, it's awfully expensive in a different world out here. Mm-hmm. Um, and moving out was a, a big change for everybody having to do this. But I think it's really the only way we can be in as much media place and have as much access the things that we need to do um i think the like the nonprofit game if anyone's involved in the nonprofit game and they're not like this is a dirty disgusting thing don't trust those people <laughs> this is a dirty disgusting thing that you have to do and it's the only way the infrastructure we have in place to to, to enable us to to do the things we need to do in veteran stand and with civilian policing so. what's so dirty about it in your opinion it feels dirty like you gotta schmooze like I gotta go to Politicon this weekend I don't wanna go to Politicon I wanna do research I wanna talk about this I wanna do some work I wanna do some activism I don't wanna go talk to a bunch of people that are really just trying to get their own angle through and using me as a tool to get their own agenda through and then I have to manipulate that into getting what we really need to get done and serve the people and it's just it's, it's a gross game that uh, I a lot, of, a, lot of schmo- a lot of schmoozing, I guess. Yeah, a lot of schmoozing, a lot of <laughs> smiling when you're not in the mood for it. And like <laughs> so, um, yeah, so uh, talk a little bit about the uh, focus of Veteran Stand, because I know that's kind of changed over time here. What is your focus uh, moving towards now? Well, we had, like, essentially two... Uh, concepts going forward that we learned from Veterans Stand uh, in Standing Rock. And in Standing Rock, we learned that it was much, uh, the, the old adage that it's much easier to mobilize than to organize was absolutely true. We can get people to respond, but to get people on the same page and in a direction in a unified manner is a, a very different beast. And that is what we will need to do going forward. So we wanted, the first concept was that, uh, so to organize, we should keep everything a little bit more local. And so we started this idea that what we wanted to do was unite veterans and be more of a network and have them address issues in their local neighborhoods, whatever issues they had in their areas. And then we could provide like a, an overall umbrella of support and media, things like that to get everybody uh, kind of like a franchise kind of thing, I guess would be a, a way to explain it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we wanted to not, we also um, saw a bit of kind of the classic white saviorism idea and activism where you people that want to help will want to go and help, but they'll want to help in their way. And that's, 
It's never effective, and that's not what service is. You have to listen to the people you're trying to help and fix the things that that they need. Mm -hmm. So uh, we wanted to figure out a way to teach that, and um, we started a partnership with the Vans Warped Tour because the idea is you need to build stages and platforms for other people's voices and to serve. That's what service is. Mm -hmm. So we said, uh, why not build a literal stage and platform for other voices to be heard? And we partnered with the Vans Warped Tour, and so they're going around right now. We have an activation with virtual reality with some empathy things and an awareness of activism issues that people can go into VR and see and um, unite veterans in the different areas to come over and talk to see what we're doing. And um, we have uh, bands and poets uh, from the local areas and national ones going around and just having being able to show up and having a mic and having a stage and having an audience at absolutely no cost to them. So this is what you do. You build platforms and stages. And just to use this as a test example to show everybody what they want to do. Mm-hmm. But the other side of that has been, as time has gone on, I dramatically underestimated the amount of post-traumatic stress and the effects that that has had on the veteran population, whether that was because uh, I don't have the genetics to be affected by that and there's something wrong with me, mm-hmm. or it was a, the, the units I'm in or just what I've been subject to or not, I, I was like naive to this. And mm-hmm. after being in Standing Rock and seeing how many people were greatly affected by what the system in our country had put them through in an attempt at service is something that we just have learned we really need to address. And I think we would be um, remiss if we did not focus on the self-care and attention of the veterans so that they can take care of themselves before we can help somebody else. You know, like the, I guess the concept of, of an airplane when the oxygen mask comes on, you don't put yours on, you're not going to be able to help anybody. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we have to face that whether we want it to be more active immediately or not, we're going to have to face that reality. So we've been partnering a lot of, most of this work is with the CEO, Anthony Diggs. He does the vast majority of the work now. Mm-hmm. And he's been uniting some NFL players, um, ex-NFL players, uh, owners, former owners of some NFL teams, and a bunch of veteran groups around the country to coalesce all the network resources into uh, a way to treat um, the post-traumatic stress through doctors and through counseling and trying to get them off of pharmaceuticals by going to uh, cannabis and maybe even uh, working with uh, psychedelics, but that, mm-hmm. that's off in the future. But now we really want to focus on harm mitigation with cannabis training, and then hopefully we can get all these certificates when people come out, learn how to take care of everything, learn the sciences of it all, learn how we should be doing things, and then take that information back in mass to begin flooding the VA with doctor doctor recommendations for the, these ways to help deal with the post-traumatic stress, while at the same time, <laughs> we got to be fighting to not put people into these situations. That's, that's a, a new fight that is like another one that I don't, I don't have any time to take on, but it's, this is a bigger issue that what we're doing to our sons and daughters is having these long lasting effects that the rest of society now has to, to, to address. 
Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, now what was the connection with, uh, was there a connection with the CTE, uh, with the, with the NFL, uh, situation where you're talking about the owners and the players and stuff? Cause I know that they're, you know, just had this big report come out about the brains they've been studying and that, uh, is that something that you think that, that they're looking at as well with, with these methods that you're investigating? Yeah. As we've worked on these issues and we've, we've talked and made connections, we've, it just naturally came about because of these mutual issues that are going on. I mean, we're essentially sending our country's combatants for the elite's um, profit gains over to our foreign issues and giving them traumatic brain injuries. And then at, on our own soil, we are kind of having these combatants on the field for the entertainment of the elite and whether uh, we want to face that as a common thread. That is the common thread that united the veterans and NFL very much as we've been working through this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting connection. Yeah. Um, now, going back to Standing Rock a little bit, there was that report by The Intercept that came out uh, about the kind of spying tactics and, and some uh, ways and methods that they used to try to quell the protests. Uh, what was your response to that? Um, I mean, I have the same response, and I have when it was at the beginning. It's yeah, of course, man. I, I don't know. Like this is this is what we've been telling everybody. It was uh, the police are state-sanctioned agents for the elite. Uh, they protect profits and socialize the losses. We that so when you just saw it more clearly there in Standing Rock, uh, the veteran issue with going to Standing Rock was not mine. That that didn't come from me. That just happened to be a tie-in that I wasn't aware really existed and could be a uniting thread. I was there because of my police activism in that the three things that I, that I talk about of what policing does so badly in America was clearly exemplified right there in Standing Rock. Mm -hmm. So does, that means they're going to infiltrate. They're going to do coin telpo. Like, of course. And they're going to pay people to do it, just like we do overseas. We replace them with Blackhawk or whatever. It's the same kind of thing. These are the same people with the same tactics. I've been saying we have the same domestic policy as we do a foreign policy. Like, yeah, I mean, this is what I think. I think that the, we can't trust when you're doing a big movement like that because you're going to have infiltrators in it, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, now, uh, kind of going to the uh, dash cams that we were talking about, uh, and the, or in the body cameras as well, um, there's been some high-profile cases uh, that I wanted to discuss with you. Um, just, you know, kind of give us your general overview of what, you know, you think of, of cameras and, and, and as it relates to policing. Well, cameras in general, to me, were always a tool. So my, my real uh, encountering of cameras in Baltimore when I started up, so I'm pre-body cam, so I, I want to like kind of put maybe that Orwellian focus into perspective on what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So when I was a young cop, we were just getting flip cameras. So I started taking pictures occasionally with like flip camera. <laughs> it was trash, of course, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know how useful it was, but I was trying to develop some kind of thing where I knew who was who, would take pictures of the area and have some kind of, of recording. Uh, the other cameras that we had were the CCTV cameras around the 
the city. So they started going up where you get these little flashing blue lights in the neighborhoods. And then we started having a person that operates the camera and they, as patrol officers, they'll call out when they see disturbances or they see issues. And then you go respond to them as you're surveilling the people. So this isn't like you, you, somebody has a complaint and they call 911. This is 911 like surveilling essentially. Mm-hmm. As that progressed, I went into narcotics. And then, so as I started doing narcotics enforcement, we had our own guy that would go in and take over the cameras. So we would specifically use them to zoom in and hunt for drug dealers, drug buyers coming out, tracking them to where they went, getting information on them, and building cases that way. I then had to go through all this trouble to get good digital cameras that I would use when I would go into surveillance to record activity. And I'd have to get a, I'd have to get like a, a search warrant and permission from the court to, to get the camera and that it was certified, whether it could record audio, it, it didn't record audio in these certain areas and what circumstances I could do these things. And then I had to get these batteries and figure out a way to store all this, this data throughout the day as I was trying to hide in a vacant building or something like that. So it was this huge effort for me to get this camera and use it as a tool to put people into a prison cell. Mm-hmm. Now we're at this point where we are arguing to get me that camera on a 24-7 basis with no supervision, no repercussions on, on how I use it or how I manipulate it. It's a tool because you, as a, a community, you're not in control of that camera. This is a tool for the police, just as it was a tool for me. So I think what we ended up doing is we're arguing for our own Orwellian mass escalation of surveillance. Mm-hmm. And it's their tool that they will continue to use. There was a case in Florida where the cops were on camera. It looks like they're like, stop resisting, stop resisting, and they're fighting this guy. And they clear the case, and then later they find a camera that was from a different area, and it was incredibly clear that the cops were criminal and would just jump this guy and beat him. But from the camera of the of the cops, it looked perfectly good. So mm-hmm. the idea of putting like a camera onto their chest and then having it tied with facial recognition. Like most people, they get upset when they find out that we have vehicles in policing that drive down the road and run everyone's tags and their driver's license through warrant checks. That freaks them out. Mm-hmm. Now imagine doing that with everyone's face as every single cop walks down the street. And then you're being told, oh, well, what's the problem with the police? Why don't you want to call the police or associate with the police when they're walking around with, with that? Right. Yeah. I mean, if you're a domestic violence victim or something, you really want to be telling all these personal intimate details right into the camera lens. I mean, that kind of takes away. So in 2013, I warned of all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, this is dangerous this way. We really have to think about what we're doing. We end up arguing to give the enforcers more power. And I don't, I, I don't know the psychological condition behind why we do that. Mm-hmm. The angle of the cameras is from the cops' perspective in these cases, so you get you just kind of, you know, subconsciously, maybe even not even realizing it, have uh, unconscious bias there because you're only seeing it from the angle of the cop, and you're not seeing that kind of god's eye view of it, you know. So. Yeah, I didn't even think about it that way, but you like, even. 
subconsciously as a viewer, mm-hmm. if you are, yeah, if you have the guy running and he's panicking, uh, you can you can get into that like Blair Witch Project, <laughs> and, and, and the reality is none of that is even happening. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, now, uh, the makers of Taser Axon they they pledge body cameras to every department in the in the country. Um, you kind of mentioned that you had to go through all these hoops to to get those. Uh, so, um, what what is your your take on that? It seems like it's just they're kind of throwing these out like candy, like they're the solution to everything. You know. Well, because I think Axon is smart business-wise. Uh, I mean, this got Bill Gates a lot of money in his pockets doing a tactic like this. I mean, mm-hmm. this is this is old-school pyramid scheme tactics where you try to tie them into, you get them a free product, and then you tie them in. This is like the cell phone contract, you know? Oh, it's free. Yeah, sure, it's free, whatever. You're paying $200 a month. It's not free. Right. Uh, and a lot of this stuff I've argued in the past, like, I don't know why we're even doing dealing with third parties on this. This is cameras in 2017. If you don't have an IT department in your city that can use open source camera technology, you don't deserve to be a mayor. This is like 13-year-olds can set this system up uh, without a lot of expenses. So we don't even need that. But what they... I don't know whether it's policing itself. I, I say policing is kind of like the, the exemplification, the ultimate exemplification of American society because that's what we do when we're ultimately stressed. But we, we want to look towards somebody else, towards an authority figure, and, and it's like, well, this wasn't on us. I mean, Axon said these tasers were safe. Well, yeah, of course Axon said those pages were safe. Well, Axon said that it would help us to have all these cameras. Well, of course Axon said that. You know, like, we we have to kind of take accountability for ourselves a little bit as a society right now to look at what we're actually funding and doing. As uh, our policing work has, has gone on, we have our civilian-led policing organization that I'm not a part of. It's civilianledpolicing.org. But they go around the country trying to spread that model of civilian-led policing that I developed, and that's what they're really hitting up against is is this uh, a fear of like accountability for ourselves. So if we actually take control of policing, mm-hmm. then we are accountable for what goes right and what goes wrong, and we would almost rather blame some individual or some entity that is is, is distant from us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then one of the more famous, uh, you know, uh, things with the cameras here recently was Flando Castile. And, you know, that didn't really seem to change the behavior of the police officers in that situation. It just, you know, there was a dash cam, uh, you know, and, and there was, the whole thing was recorded, but, you know, at the same time, you know, this, you know, the cop felt scared and then can do whatever he wants at that point. So if you still have the legal standard that that's how it is, it's like, you know, that doesn't change anything. It doesn't seem to change anything from what I can tell. So, yeah, it would seem empirically that the numbers would say that nothing is actually changing. We just have it on camera now. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. that's not helping. I mean, uh, I think if people follow my Twitter, they will end up seeing me complain a lot about this lust of violence porn careers and activism that's built on violence porn. And we have a lot of violence porn right now, but we're not focusing on any of the solutions and realizing that the the collection of violence porn isn't going to end it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then another case that I wanted to ask you about was this uh, Baltimore cops that we had. Um, you know, it, maybe it looks like they were planting something. Maybe it looks like they were recreating something other people say. But what was your take when you saw that? So when I first saw it, I thought to myself, well, yeah, I mean, this could be a recreation. Hold on. We don't have just the, the idea when the first case first came out is a public defender says, hey, this video is, is is the cops planning drugs. Well, I mean, that's that's the public defender's job to say that, whether that video tells us that or not, or the, any other evidence aligns with that. So be skeptical of the source. And I expected to see that the officer was kind of recapturing the scene and would I would have done that if I would have had a body camera when I was a street cop. I would have totally done that for court. But I would have written it in my report. I would have noted it. I would have made it very clear on video that I was doing something just for court to capture it. Um, and as time went on, we didn't seem to see that. Mm-hmm. So uh, the report doesn't align with that. It doesn't make any mention of it. The officer has never made any mention of it being a recreation. So it seems like the the most benevolent aspect you can give to the police at the moment with that is they um, actually did the case but faked the recreation so that it would be a stronger case or something. I mean, that's obviously morally and legally corrupt as it is, but that, that appears to be the best case scenario that they could be hoping for, which opens up a whole can of different things. It opens up the manipulation of the cameras there. So if they're all aware that they're manipulating cameras, somebody said something in in the video about it. Are you sure that had been 30 seconds? Mm-hmm. So the that's obviously a theme that everyone's doing of manipulating the camera. So again, if it's a tool, then it's their tool if they're in control of what is recorded and what isn't. So we it is an exemplification of what I said, even though I was naive about it in my first approach of looking at it and, and still tried to give the police some kind of benefit of the doubt that I shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. That it, Yeah, I mean, that's their tool, so they're going to use it to do these things. And as long as policing itself is morally corrupt, and I mean, I tell it, police itself is morally corrupt. The drug war itself, not only is it empirically ineffective, it is morally corrupt. So, like, we get evidence, we find, and we go, okay, well, there's a camera there, and every once in a while we get this evidence, and like, oh, look, policing is morally corrupt. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Can we finally go to this area where, where we look at what the solutions are and, and not these insular things that end up digging us worse? So when I yell about being white liberals or moving the political spectrum to the right, this is what I'm talking about, is that in effect, we come into things with good intentions, but in effect, we make things worse because we won't focus on the hard work of what the actual issues are and solutions need to be and how we need to look at ourselves in that recognition. So uh, another thing that came up when you were talking about Philando Castillo involved in that is now that we had Justine Damon being shot the other day, so all, all now Minneapolis is, is going to make some kind of uh, 
and change in their policing. But this goes back, as we see victims like Jeffrey Hammond and we see more Justine Damon, this goes to that fear standard. Cops are always fear. We still have a cultural now that's still painting like policing is a dangerous job. It is empirically not a dangerous job. It is it is a scary job, not a dangerous job. So they don't actually shouldn't even have all this fear. We still have this gun culture going on. And then when we recognize that we have racial bias in our policing, we go and we give them bias training. Mm-hmm. But what this bias training ends up doing is we think, uh, even if we have good intentions, we say, okay, we're going to have bias training. And when we bring these cops in, they're going to realize that that black guy is not, is, 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 is as little bit of a threat as this white lady is. That's what we think. But what ends up happening in our fear-driven culture is that the cops have ended up saying, oh, my, you know what? You're right. That white lady is as dangerous as that black guy. And you're like, oh, damn it. (laughs) You ended up doing the wrong thing because we're not addressing that root cause that policing is a violent thing that was uh, created to create a, a divisions and classes of oppression than to extract resources from those oppressed classes to um, continue to oppress the Native American, uh, continue the Native American genocide. And, and that that is, and to protect elite property, that is what policing does. So if we don't fix those things, it doesn't matter what you put into that soup. You're always going to end up getting the what policing is as its root. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, manipulating the, the you know, how they, the first 30 seconds of the, uh, you know, the Baltimore thing uh, was, you know, silent and the cops seemed to know that. Um, another shooting that we had recently of the Australian woman, I, I'm blanking on her name, but the um, woman that was shot. That's by the, Justine Damon. Oh, yeah. that's just her. Okay. Yeah. yeah they had the, uh, the, the cameras off, right, the whole time and they turned them off before they got there and they weren't supposed to. And, I don't know if you don't turn them on, it doesn't do doesn't do any of the good that you say it does, and it's kind of slow. Yeah, and what do any of these policy violations matter? You know, it's just like yeah, of course they have all these policy mm-hmm. violations because we don't have supervision, and you never hold supervision accountable. We have to hold supervision accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, we look at the the cop at the end. So does the cop at the end? Like yeah, he has his thirty second thing. They they end up having the the videos, the cameras turned off. They, they manipulate reports, but there are commanders that are training them. Kevin Davis, the commissioner of Baltimore, already talked about it. Like they're training them how the cameras work, and then you have those incentives implied on top of them. So if you train them how to manipulate and you incentivize them to do manipulation and gather stats, well, that's what they're going to do. They're going to manipulate and gather stats. I mean... Like, those are the fun- fundamental issues. It doesn't matter which commissioner is in charge. It doesn't matter wh- which uh, mayor you have. As long as you keep that process going, it's going to continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, switching gears just a little bit, um, you were on the same program as Ann Coulter, uh, which was uh, a pretty excruciating listen for a lot of reasons. But um, she, <laughs> I just appreciate the fact that you told her to her face that she doesn't know what she's talking about. So, so, so thank you for doing that for, on, on behalf of, of all of us. Um, but, uh, yeah, what was that like? <laughs> um. I, I think Ann got duped into being in a room with me. 
And so... Because they started asking her all these questions that, like, somebody who might actually know something like you could answer, but she just started spouting off her xenophobic, racist (laughs) garbage. It's like, you don't even know what you're saying. (laughs) Right. So it became a big talk over fest. Oh, yeah. And it was like, I'm I'm not going to play this game. (laughs) But it's weird, like, when you look at those kind of people in the eye, I don't... I don't believe them that they they don't know what they're doing. So you think she's in on it? She knows she knows it's all a ruse. It's just 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 yeah. a game. You don't think she believes I it? I think so. Huh? No, that's why you won't. Like, if you believe it, okay. So like, maybe Jesse Lee Peterson believes it because he is like the most right wing kind of crazy person that has sat there and actually talked to me. Like Ben Shapiro, Sam Harris is. Uh, all all these these uh, types, they're not going to sit down and ha- and talk to me and let me get into their actual methodology and break this stuff down for the things that they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he did. So like, was this the radio maybe show? Maybe he believes it. The, it was a radio and a okay. TV show. Like he did a whole sit down interview with me talking about yeah. this, and it was it was crazy. <laughs> but it's like. Maybe he believes it, but when you have the people that will run from an actual ch- so they'll sit there. I mean, this is one of my big gripes with Sam Harris. So sit here and talk about policing and military shit, which he never did either of. <laughs> will make claims about it, has no understanding of it, and then when I say, "What are you talking about?" That is absolutely not true. I'm willing to hash those ideas out, mm-hmm. but you're being a liar if you won't face those issues. Well, I mean. I- you know what you're doing. <laughs> right. And so she's yeah. in and out of like all these places when, whenever she's even ever been around and I've glimmered, you know, glanced at this like run in, run out, cause a stir, get the heck out of there mm-hmm. because you don't actually want to be pushed. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now you've been on RT a fair amount. Um, no, I, I had a ring today. Oh, no, today actually. Okay, sorry, <laughs> only today. today. Okay. <laughs> no, I thought it was a good bet, but I am going today again too because that's about what I'm left with. Oh, uh, right, right. But I was going to ask you because I had Alexei uh, Kovalev on a couple episodes ago, and he's a Russian journalist, and he was talking about he just basically thinks that's just Russian state television, and it's just spouting propaganda. So, what was your, what is your take on on RT in general? I mean, I've seen certain bits that are questionable, but I have a lot of stuff I've seen seems to, I don't know, seems to check out. So, Well, it would seem pretty clear to me that if RT is talking about Putin, mm-hmm. don't, don't believe it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they, they did, of, of major networks with resources, they did by far the best coverage of the uprising in Baltimore mm-hmm. and, and the issues that are going in there. They, they talk about real cases. They, they get on the ground and actually go to areas and, and tell true uh, unbiased reporting about mm-hmm. that's been on the streets that I've seen. So as long as it's not associated with Putin and Russia as a state, I think they're, 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 they seem to be very reliable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to look at it. Um, now, kind of switching gears again, I did want to ask you about this uh, 1033 program. Um, you know, this is obviously something that came to light, you know, what first for me, at least with uh, Ferguson, uh, how the military just basically gives away all these, uh, you know, remaindered equipment to uh, local police departments. And then I saw something that, uh, I just can't remember where I saw it, but it was a story about a fake de- police department that got some free stuff out of it. Um, you know, and then I feel like this kind of, you know, ties into the overuse of SWAT teams and, you know, MRAPs and kind of mundane situations. So it, could you kind of explain your, your take on that? 
<laughs> sure. So I have I have a story to tell, the quick one. Okay. <laughs> that that kind of encapsulates this, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, we have these the, a couple of VR systems that we got because that's one of these things that we want to use to address like empathy training and trying to like get people immersed into a situation. Mm-hmm. So we have to go through all these different software and see which one's good and which one's not. And yesterday, um, Biggs, our CEO for Veteran Stan, he was testing out this one called Hero Bound, which ended up being a game. But you look at it like 3D perspective and like a Zelda kind of thing, but you're like in the world in 3D. Mm-hmm. And so he's this little troll and he's going around and he's just checking things out. And then he finds a sword. And so I'm like, okay, so you found a sword. So I guess now. <laughs> you're going to have to go find something to kill, right? And he's running out the door to, uh, of the game to go find something to kill because he has a sword. What, what, I mean, that's you give boys the swords and <laughs> go find something to kill. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, it's, just, it's just the way it is. Whether that is uh, some kind of, what is it if you're anti-men? I don't even know the word, but... Right. If, if, if you're whatever that is, or however I could be biased about that, what it really comes down to it is just some fundamental true of our eightness. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So don't Absolutely. give, don't give boys and enforcement roles or people with authority toys like that. Yeah. They will use them. Yeah, I think, I think toy is the right, right word to use there. Um, now, uh, Jeff Sessions is obviously uh, continuing to put down some pretty draconian policies to take us back to the drug war. Um, first of all, the, the mandatory minimums looks like those are, are coming back. Um, and those just are, you know, I feel like that just is the, one of the fuel fueling things of the mass incarceration. Uh, and then the other thing that you brought back was the federal asset forfeiture, uh, laws. Uh, could you remind us uh, what those are and how those affect, uh, you know, mass incarceration and all that? Yeah, absolutely. So civil forfeiture laws probably keep people out of jail in some kind of weird way, because what they make us do as police, it means that if we just can articulate a reason why this person who we have suspected of doing something, if they can't come up with a good reason for why they have all this cash or assets, then I get to take it and I don't even have to prove my case. Mm -hmm. That is what civil asset forfeiture is. And the first uh, principle of American policing that I espouse is the creation and maintenance of oppressed classes and the extraction of resources from those oppressed classes in order to fund their own oppression. That is exactly what that is. So it is... um, if you are a Republican or a Libertarian, you should be going crazy at that idea mm. of authorized, not even like not even preponderance of the evidence, just state-sanctioned theft in order to pay for the people who are the thieves. Mm-hmm. That is civil asset forfeiture. Right. Um, mandatory minimums are based on the idea of punishment as a deterrent and of all the literature and things that we have been studying for decades and decades and centuries there is no evidence that enforcement equals or the extent of punishment equals a deterrent for future crime but when you keep people in prison longer and you subject them to more marginalization we know that increases crime so we're doing something that we know will not 
lower crime, but will increase crime. That is the Orwellian escalation mm. of policing that I keep trying to get people to understand that this is what it is all designed to do. And even though you bring back civil abuse, like even uh, the the progression of, uh, of policing uh, isn't really changing. Uh, it doesn't matter who's in office or you know, I have to point people all the time when you know, there are plenty of people that when I've talked about what I've done have made good case and they can adamantly believe that I should be in prison for everything that I witnessed. Mm-hmm. Right. But everything that I did was under an entirely black and democratic chain of command, all the way up to Eric Holder and President Obama. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we have to get away from any kind of thinking that these faces in these offices really matter on the ground because kind of gets filtered down through the system. That system, as long as that system is what we are doing at its fundamental level, then we are going to continue those those outcomes of more people in jail. Even if it's not through increased mandatory minimum, we'll find another way. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of which, you know, we have the private prison industry surging now with all the, um, you know, deportations and, and, and rounding up people in these sanctuary cities and whatnot. And that's just basically, they just want, you know, the beds filled. You know, they don't really care how they get it. Just, you know, round somebody up, get them in there. And, you know, we got to make a profit. So how do we dislocate the profit motive from doing that? I don't even know. No, I don't think you can. I think looking at profit prisons, are still a distraction in what I say we end up really doing anyway. Get rid of private prison. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. The private prison is only the name on the building. That is it. So even if you, when you have a state prison, it says state of Maryland on it, but it's still built by private companies. It is still stocked with private companies. The employees are uniformed by private companies, mm-hmm. uh, food, everything. So the only thing that is different between a private prison and a state prison is who owns the damn building and who is scraping off uh, some profits in the end, whether that's salaries for state employees or, or money in the pocket of, of a private industry captain. I mean, the end result for people ends up being the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Cisco's going to win either way, I guess. <laughs> They're gonna right, exactly. Supply their... <laughs> so like, you, we can go and have fights about private prisons, and we can all argue about it, and yeah, is it a mitigating effect? Sure. But it's really more of a mitigating effect on the bottom line of our pocketbooks, not on how we treat people. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, switching gears a little bit again, now, since you're a veteran, I wanted your take on Trump's sudden transgender restrictions in the military. What was your thoughts on that? I mean, he's a, a clown, man. Yep. Um, <laughs> Next question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's silly. Uh, for, for what, I mean, any of those kind of restrictions are always silly. Um, I, I felt like, like say for instance, uh, we suddenly were gonna. I was, I was a Muslim, and he said he was gonna kick all Muslims out. I was, gonna, I would just be like, oh, I'm, I'm not Muslim. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> like so, you could just lie and circumvent the system. So anybody that wants to serve <laughs> is able yeah. to just lie and circumvent the system anyway. You have, you can't like. I mean, what are you talking about? You're like trying to police an idea mm-hmm. or somebody's hormones. That's that's that's, that's a preposterous concept on its face. But what I really want to get us away from 
is what I ended up seeing was a lot of people stand up and say, wait, this is wrong. If anyone that wants to serve this country and this military, they should be able to do that. And remember what I'm hearing there is that I don't care whose kids it is, we should all send them to be traumatized in our profitization for private companies and national freaking issues of mm-hmm. collecting wealth into the oligarchy and the plutocracy. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that, that's what I'm hearing. Hmm. And I'm like, no, I would rather the 99% be banned from the U.S. military, and the 1% can fight their own damn wars. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want anyone transgender in the military either, because I don't want any of us going through that. Mm. Yeah, well, it's a little more inclusive. Yeah, like, I don't want, because what we end up doing, as I'm saying, with these unintended consequences, we end up fighting and saying, no, this military is honorable, and anybody that wants to do it should be able to do it. And this military is not honorable. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. I thought of it more like, you know, I never served, you know, so who would I be to tell somebody that they couldn't? But, you know, I guess if you're against the idea of, of the, uh, you know, <laughs> protecting private property through, you know, uh, you know, like you described through the military and police like that, it's it's not really a good deal anyway. So, um, but I know you're not a Democrat uh, and you voted for Jill Stein, as we've talked about before, but um, <laughs> what's... Uh, <laughs> it's not like a... <laughs> part of your fault for this Trump guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what do you what do you think the Democrats should do at this point? Do you have any advice for them? I mean, what, I mean, I know you have your own opinions about the Democrats as far as being just kind of a lighter version of the Republicans, but you know they are the main opposition party that we have in our system right now. So, well, I think we're still facing the fundamental issue, which looks on its surface to be old people versus young people. But I think is really the adapters of information versus those who haven't adapted mm-hmm. to the age of information. Right. Um, the Standing Rock movement politically was extremely tarnished um, by those older groups of the tribal elders uh, from a movement that was started and led by the youth and kicked off and got attention by the youth from Bobby Jean Three Legs running across the country. This is what started that movement. They want to unite the tribes. The elders still want to freaking argue with one, one another over everything. Uh, so the, the, our politics in the global, in the bigger perspective, national perspective, are the same thing. We have young people who have ideas, who are listening to science, who are in the age of information, who are saying what we need to do, and they're backed by scientific data and morality, but we're getting pushback from the top. So all they have to do is listen to the damn people who who are the real base. They think the base is because they can't see past their own narrow little windows. They think the base is fifty year old white people, but it's not. It is. It's these. It's the we're, us millennials are getting old. Dude, I'm thirty eight almost. Like, yeah. They think millennials are children. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like we're we're becoming the majority of millennials and below will soon be the majority of the country and we're going to end up taking over anyway and doing these things. So if you want to survive as a democratic party and get your ideals in, you have to start listening to the, to, to the youth. You cannot be dismissive and tell people, they, I mean, come on, they tell people like me to grow up. And I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. How much, like how much more did you want me to give to this country? Mm-hmm. So like, I mean, I've done everything and, and your idea, yeah, I mean, education-wise, service-wise, mm-hmm. <laughs> family-wise, and it's like, 
that's who you talk down to. So if you're talking down to all of us like that, we're not going to follow you. Mm -hmm. It's preposterous. So we have to do things like, I mean, you can't sit there and, and serve you can't be Cory Booker clearly serving Wall Street. Mm -hmm. You can't be Elizabeth Warren clearly not being willing to take any risk. You can't be Bernie Sanders, who's really just everybody's nice grandpa, but won't face any real issues or develop a real platform. Mm -hmm. You have to come out and be bold and take stances and be authentic. Even the literature says authentic leadership is the future. And it's part of the reason why I stay so brash, because I want to have a long Twitter history where Mike Wood kept it real. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and I didn't hold anything back mm -hmm. because it's, it's, you've got to be yourself. Mm -hmm. You've got to be authentic and you've got to actually fight for the people. You can't be doing these. I like, you can't run this country and not know how an email server works. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> you can't. That seems like a good prerequisite for the next <laughs> president. You know, so I can't really argue like, with that. <laughs> I hear the most qualified candidate ever, and I'm like, eh, maybe the best traditional resume ever. <laughs> but if you don't know how email server works, you are not qualified in 2016. <laughs> You're not. I mean, that doesn't mean Trump is qualified. You know, email sure. server works either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. That's my point. Yeah. We have yeah. to have somebody that at least knows how the email server works. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a good slogan right there. But um, <laughs> well, uh, the dream party. We got somebody that knows how to email. <laughs> we we're on Gmail. <laughs> get at us. <laughs> but uh, well, uh, is there anything else I didn't ask you about that you wanted to get in here this time? Uh, no, I mean I think the big things really are right now that we have that I hope people can uh, embrace is civilian-led policing. Um, there's civilianledpolicing.org or at civilianledpd on Twitter. They're working extremely hard to really fix the core issues, and they're looking for for help and volunteers and help. They can help you draft legislation and whatever you need to do. It's really not that hard to do these dramatic reforms. That's part of that that argument about. Uh, incremental change and, and the mm -hmm. Democrats where they have to do they have to be bold too and, and not think that we can't stop things. Like mm -hmm. in Albuquerque, it's fourteen thousand signatures to get something on a referendum to put something in like civilian life policing. Mm -hmm. You're gonna tell me you can't get fourteen thousand signatures? Dude, that's easy. Mm -hmm. All you gotta do is pound the pavement and you can get fourteen thousand signatures to radically change your entire political structure to one that serves for you. It's, that, it's not hard. Mm -hmm. You can go out and do it. All you gotta do is is, is do like that. I, I, even some of these older people that you look to look up to in history, like Einstein, who says he wasn't a genius. He said he just that he was he was too dumb to ever give up. Mm -hmm. so, so like that's what a lot of the stuff is. It's just out there going out there and grinding, and you really can make radical change. And for any veterans and cannabis related treatment things and veterans that want to unite to go to veterans-stand.org and sign up. Our CEO is working awfully hard to get everybody uh, united towards that goal of getting um, in a better place so we can go fight more missions at home. Sweet. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, all that you do. And, uh, yeah, look forward to talking to you again here soon. So uh, I'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Rob. Have a good day.
you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast everywhere it's available, which includes iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. It really helps. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Until next time.